Hey, Cracked fans. With the summer months just around the corner, we know all of you are beginning to think about how you can best maximize your chances to improve your game with the warm weather. Well, thankfully, we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to tell all of you about the 254 Tennis Camp happening this summer at Baylor University. Now, over the course of three weeks in June, starting June 12th through the 16th and ending June 26th through the 30th, you'll have the opportunity to learn from from some of the best coaches in the business in an all-encompassing tennis experience. You'll have the opportunity to improve each and every part of your game, whether that be on the singles court, whether that be on the doubles court, through drilling, through point play, match play as well. You'll also, of course, receive a free t-shirt for participating in the camp, but also have the chance to see yourself broadcasted as our Crack Rackets team will be providing coverage of the final day each week at this 254 tennis camp. Again, you'll have the opportunity to learn from some of the best coaches in the business. I promise Coach Michael Woodson and the Baylor team going to make it an extraordinarily enjoyable time. How can you get signed up today? Well, you can learn more information by visiting the Baylor website by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp. Again, that's baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp to sign up today. Now, this camp open to any and all entrants, but limited only by age, number, grade level, and or gender. Again, you can learn more about this camp by going to baylor.edu slash athletics slash tennis camp today. Don't miss out, folks. Going to be three very exciting, fun weeks of tennis down at Baylor University. Be sure to sign up for the 254 Tennis Camp happening at Baylor today. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the big storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 6th. On today's show, I put a bow on our coverage of the year's second Grand Slam, the 2022 French Open now officially in the books. Not only did it deliver us fantastic tennis over the past two weeks, it also delivered us two dominant performances in the two championship singles matches, of course, on the women's side. So we've come to expect from world number one. Iga Sviantek and the 21-year-old delivered the goods once again. Another straight set victory, this time 6-1-6-3 over young American Coco Golf. of course, for the 18-year-old Goff to even reach a single slam final this early in her career. A testament to the talent she possesses, a confirmation of the promise we have all seen from the young 18-year-old whenever she steps out onto the court. And of course, on today's show, I want to talk about what allowed Goff to be successful in Paris, how she can capture the momentum she built at the French Open and use it to propel her forward throughout the rest of this 2022 season. But of course, the biggest storyline in women's tennis, perhaps the biggest storyline in tennis at large right now, is the continued success of 21-year-old Iga Sviantek. Again, captures her second major title, second French Open title, 35 consecutive victories now matching the longest streak of the 21st century previously done by Venus Williams. Iga Sviantek continues to succeed at rates we just, quite frankly, do not see 
throughout the course of WTA history. And I want to acknowledge here at the start of today's podcast, I sincerely apologize for my tweet describing Iga Svantec as on a pace ahead of Maria Sharapova, ahead of Serena Williams, Venus Williams, and others at this point of her career. This is the problem with social media. You try to condense a tweet, a thought into 160 characters or however many you are afforded, and it doesn't do it justice. That's why I try not to do that with much frequency on social media. Try to save my large takes for this podcast platform where I can take the time to explain myself, offer context, offer a plethora of sometimes useless statistics, but nevertheless, the statistics that shape my thinking on any given topic. And I did not do that with that tweet. I sincerely Sincerely apologize for anyone I offended, in particular fans of Serena Williams, were not pleased with me stating that Iga Svantec was on a pace ahead of Serena. And again, the birthdays get tough. Iga Svantec has just turned 21. Age 21 season was such a massive year for Serena Williams. And obviously, if Iga Svantec wants to keep on that pace, she has to continue to deliver the goods at the rate she has here in the 2022 season. Nevertheless, you know, there were accusations made of what I was insinuating in the tweet that I don't even want to bring up here on this podcast. I'm embarrassed that anyone would think that of me. I'm ashamed by, I suppose, the uh, not, I suppose, I am ashamed by the fact that anyone would think that I'm trying to dismiss the immense accomplishments of Serena Williams, who, in my opinion, as I have stated on this podcast before, this is not me backtracking. I think longtime listeners of the show are well aware of this fact. Serena Williams is not only the greatest tennis player of my lifetime. She's the greatest athlete I have seen, the most dominant athlete in her sport in my lifetime. Again, since 1995, you can throw her up against, obviously, a Nadal, a Djokovic, a Federer. She has more accolades, more titles, more weeks at, etc., etc., etc. You can compare her against players like a LeBron James, whose longevity, I think, is probably the best comparison in terms of modern athletes. We all marvel at the fact that this weekend, Rafael Nadal wins the French Open title. He won his first French Open title in 2005. He wins another one here in 2022, 17 years apart. Serena Williams won her first title in 1999 at the Grand Slam level. She won her latest title, and I say latest because her career is not over, in 2017. 17 and a half years passed between Serena Williams' first and latest Grand Slam titles. Only 17 for Rafael Nadal. Now, of course, he could continue to match that. And after his performance this weekend, is there anyone who, if healthy, is not going to pick him to win the 2023 French Open? Probably not. But the reason, again, I bring that up is to bring into... The, just to state the fact, I am well aware and have the perspective of what Serena Williams has accomplished. The whole purpose of the tweet is to broadcast the fact that Iga Sviantek is at a pace that fewer than 10 players in WTA history, again, Serena, Sharapova, Navratilova, Everett, Celis, Graf, Hingis, that's the list of players right now that Iga Sviantek has as peers with what she's accomplished by the age of 21. Nevertheless, it was a more nuanced thought, one we will continue to expand upon here with our usual cast of Crack Rackets characters. That said, I do apologize again. Lack of nuance in the tweet led to a rush of judgments on my reflections on less so Iga Sviantek and the players that preceded her, and I want to make abundantly clear that is not the case. Again, what Venus Williams accomplished by the age of 21, you know, again, her 
immensely successful 2000 season happening so early in her career, which she was able to do across decades. I believe her slams come 11 years apart. I want to say 2007, 2008-ish being her last. Again, it's it's somewhere from that you know eight to 11 year range. All of that, all of these players, from Hingis all the way through to a Sharapova, a Serena, a Venus, all of these players accomplished immense things. The fact that their peers, or that Iga is now one of their peers with what she's accomplished at this point in her career, a testament to Iga, and not meant to put pressure on Iga, just a reflection of, again, let's acknowledge greatness when we see it. What Iga Sviantek is doing is historically exceptional, not historically unique, because it's not one of a kind. Again, there's about eight to nine players who have accomplished it as well, but that's the pace Iga is on. Nevertheless, I suppose we're getting into Iga Sviantek here early. I do want to list, uh, want to read off the list of accolades she now accomplished, the things she has done here in this 2022 season throughout this episode. But I did want to take the time to address that tweet at the start of the show. Again, I apologize. Just a lack of nuanced thought. There was never meant to be any greater implications beyond the fact that Iga Sviantek is exceptional and everyone who's a fan of tennis should take the time to realize that this is greatness unfolding before our eyes. And let's acknowledge that and let's celebrate that fact. And, you know, again, enjoy that fact as well, never meant to be a dismissal of what anyone else accomplished, rather a reflection again of the excellence we see with Iga. Nevertheless, that's five minutes on a tweet. That's better than 160 characters, certainly, and I hope that takes the time to explain my perspective. Nevertheless, for any of you tuning in to hear coverage of what happened in the final, what Iga has accomplished, where we go from there, or of course on the flip side with the men and Rafael Nadal, you know, again, I talk about the company Iga Sviantek keeps. Rafael Nadal's a one-of-one. 14 Grand Slam titles now at the French Open, you can make a strong argument, and I suppose I will do so on this show, that Rafael Nadal, from a longevity perspective, it's him, it's Serena, it's Kareem, it's LeBron, that's the Mount Rushmore of athletes in terms of from start to finish in their careers, just continued excellence. No, you know, layoffs or layovers, just year after year, repeated dominance in their sport. I mean, again, is any I was talking about this list out loud, and all right, we're we're hot here at the start of today's show, folks. It's a French Open putting a bow on it. This is a bow with sprinkles and special design. This is a we went to Michael's. We got that specialty bow. Is Michael's a specialty store for gift wrap? That's where my mom always took me. Whenever she's like, we have to go to Michael's. There was always an eye roll, and ugh, and she's like, nope, I need you. You got to grab things. You're tall, and it's like, okay, I'm happy to come, mom, because you support me, and I love you so. Um, and that's how it went, and I am not erasing any sort of history there. With that in mind, um, you know, again, for Rafael Nadal, you look at what LeBron James has done to make the finals in the 2000s, to make eight consecutive finals with the Miami Heat, Cleveland Cavaliers, to then win a championship with the Lakers, and it was, what, 15 years, I think, between him winning the Lakers championship and making that first finals with Los Angeles. May have even been fewer than 15 years, but that's sustained excellence from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar doing what he did. You know, I already made the Serena case, but for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who, you know, while on UCLA's roster leads them to multiple national championships at the collegiate level, then, you know, wins his first NBA championship. There it is in 1971. He then wins his final NBA championship in 1988. He was the finals MVP in 71 and 85. 17 years between championships, 14 years between finals MVPs. 
I mean, again, that's the other. So that's the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, Abdul stat. You look for LeBron James, again, in terms of the sustained excellence of his career. By the way, Diana Taurasi would like a uh, uh, cup of coffee in this conversation as well, which she's done in women's basketball. She is another person I'd put on the Mount Rushmore of longevity. She played for Connecticut, what, 03, 04, something like that. I remember those Connecticut women's. Those are some of my favorite teams. Again, growing up, just watching that sustained excellence from her, Sue Bird, and then it goes to the Maya Moore generation, the Brianna Stewart generation. You don't want to hear me wax poetically about Connecticut women's basketball, but the point being, I know Diana Taurasi also deserves a cup of coffee in this conversation. But yeah, LeBron James reached his first NBA Finals with Cleveland in, I believe, 2008. 2008, 7-8. Yeah, that's when they ultimately, I want to say, beat the Pistons. No, or is it 2006-2007? Either way, one of those years, they ultimately beat my Pistons, make the NBA Finals, and that's when it was really off, and he's still doing it a de- you know, two decades later, or you know, 20 years later, LeBron James still at almost or near, not quite the peak of his powers, but certainly near them. And that's what Rafa is at the French Open, to go full circle here. Enough about the non-tennis sports. You look for Rafael Nadal, 112 at three. That's what Rafael Nadal is at the French Open, 112 and three. He doesn't drop, you know, he wins 11 consecutive games to close out his 14th French Open title at age 36. He, we learned after the tournament, he's getting injections in his foot throughout the course of the tournament just to be able to be on court and play. And certainly there were some breaks throughout the course of the tournament, in particular Alex Virov legitimately breaking his ankle at the start of that second set breaker as they were about to start it. You know, certainly... That match was already three hours in. Rafael Nadal was struggling with his level. We'll never know what would have happened if that match was going to be played out. But for Rafa, who comes in, you know, without winning a clay court title, I believe here in the lead up to this 2022 French Open, that never happens for Rafael Nadal. You know, he loses to Alcaraz in three sets, fades down the home stretch of that third set in Rome to Denis Shapovalov, yet just slowly but surely found his level. And by the point of, you know, again, by the time he's down 3-1 in the second set of the final, he finds his peak form and he double doses of Rafa down the home stretch. 6-3, love, dominant performance. Second fewest games he's ever dropped in a Grand Slam final. He does that at age 36 with all of these health questions, you know, uh, hanging above his head. There's the terminology I was looking for. Just another immense performance for Rafael Nadal. And obviously, I've already reflected a bit on the greatness of both Sviantec and Nadal. But on today's podcast, I want to break it all down. Talk about the performances. What allowed Iga Sviantec to earn another straight set victory? What allowed Rafael Nadal to just so consistently and dare I say robotically break down the game of Casper Ruud in the final. Of course, I want to talk about where the finalists go from here as well. Now, we do have some big picture thoughts coming out of the clay court season as we turn the calendar towards the grass court season as well, but we're going to save those thoughts for a mega podcast that we may just be doing live on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel with David Kane later this week. Still waiting to lock in a date and time for that podcast, but 
willing to make that one a mailbag if you listeners are interested. If you do, at A.L. Gruskin, if you are on Twitter, you want to make it a mailbag podcast, let me know. We'll start taking questions. And again, if you any thoughts, any comments, things you'd like us to discuss more moving forward as we turn the page towards the grass court season, we'd love to hear all of that. So if you want to reach out to me directly, the most efficient way to do that, tweet at me, at A.L. Gruskin. With all that said, of course, the reason we're able to break everything down, the reason we were able to go daily and Hopefully we made up for our lack of week one contact, week one French Open content with a strong week two, excuse me. The reason we're able to do that is because of the support we get from all of you. We're immensely grateful that so many of you continue to listen, continue to engage, continue to share these podcasts with your friends as well. It's what allows us and continues to power us through and try and go daily. And now we enter the grind. Isn't it great? We've got two 250s this week, three tournaments on grass courts, still a clay court event, countless challengers happening. Of course, our Crack Rackets team covering the SoCal Pro Circuit as well, and it was great to see NCAA singles finalist August Holmgren make a successful transition right to the ITF Pro Circuit, sweeps the singles and doubles titles in Rancho Santa Fe last week. Of course, shout out to Masha Kazireva, recent St. Mary's graduate, sweeps the uh, wins the doubles title, makes the singles, singles final. By the way, here's a name for all of you listeners, Talia Gibson. 17-year-old, soon-to-be 18-year-old Australian, massive backhand. There are shades of Clara Tawson in her game. Now, she's not the most fluid mover, but the weapon she had, 7-6 victory in the third, she was outstanding. She's going to get into the top 700, I believe, with her victory in Rancho Santa Fe, a name to keep an eye on moving forward. Again, turns 18 later this month, already going to be top 700, has made two ITF Pro Circuit finals, now has the title to her name as well. Keep an eye on her. Keep an eye on Kazireva. Uh, you know, obviously for home, Grinny beats a guy in Gage Brimer, a little bit older, but he's making a push back towards his career high. Should re-enter the top 500 at some point this summer. It's really fun to get to see that nexus of you know, current or recently graduated collegiate stars, young rising junior talents, pro players still looking to work their way up the ranks. We feature it all on the SoCal Pro Circuit, and hopefully all of you will take the time to check that out. We have semifinals and finals coverage coming up on our YouTube channel every Saturday and Sunday in five of the next six weeks. So if you want to see some high-level tennis as we wait for Wimbledon to begin or even throughout that Wimbledon event, we'll have it for you on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. But again, shout out to so many of you who continue to tune in, who tuned in this weekend to event number one. It's what entices people to continue to want to work with us, and it's what powers us to continue to do this job, provide you all with the coverage of the tennis world. We know that all of you deserve, of course, a massive shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well, who day in, day out support this podcast and support tennis players everywhere by providing the best equipment at the lowest prices. Wilson, Babylon, Head, you name it, they've got it. Not just the tennis, lots of you I know getting into the pickleball craze, and we've had this argument before. I have no problems. There's room in our hearts for both pickleball and tennis, folks. If you can't love two sports, you're just not doing this right. They've got it all for you all the equipment, all the best prices, all in one location. Tennis point.com. You use that promo code CR15. Not only will you let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items, free two day shipping on all orders 
exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis Dash Point, simple, not the spelling. Tennis Dash Point.com. The promo code is CR15. One other thing I want to mention here at the start of today's show. Now, some of you listeners know, obviously, we have a strong affinity for the college tennis world. Not only does it produce so many different champions, and we saw both of our men's doubles players who ultimately earned the title. I'm I apologize. I'm blanking on who won the doubles titles, but I know both of them have college tennis ties, and there are countless players in both the ATP and WTA Top 100 in singles and doubles who played college tennis. Many of those players participated in the camps offered at various college campuses throughout the course of the season. Maybe you are someone living in Texas and you have kids who are trying to get into tennis or you would like to just find something to do with them in the summer. Well, we've got the perfect solution for you. The 254 tennis camps happening at Baylor University. Again, we've had the opportunity to speak with Baylor men's tennis head coach Michael Woodson multiple times here on our Cracked Rackets platform. There is no person who's going to care about ensuring that your child has a better experience than Michael Woodson from the smallest details, again, the dorm life, the food, the activities at night, and then, of course, what your kid's going to be able to do to improve their game on court in the fitness sessions throughout the course of the day. The 254 Tennis Camp offers it all, and spots are still available open to any and all entrants. Uh, it's 5-1 to one camper-counselor ratio. Again, 12 outdoor courts, 6 indoor courts, fantastic tennis, fantastic activities. I will say this, a little bit of insight for all of you listeners. I attended a similar camp early in my days at Michigan State University. While there, I met a young guy, about, you know, was my older brother's age, so three years older than me, was one of the best players in the camp, a lefty, skinny kid. And I thought, hey, this guy seems nice. This guy's very good at tennis as well. Let me try to strike a conversation with him. I've always been better at sucking up two more talented tennis players than myself. Uh, and we struck a conversation, and a friendship emerged, and... 15 years later, I suppose. Yeah, because I was about 11 when I went to the camp. That man is now the associate head coach of the Illinois men's tennis team. His name is Harry Jaden. So you never know who you're going to meet at one of these camps. Maybe you're building these friendships again for a lifetime. Maybe it'll help you later on in life that it has helped me. And I like to think it's helped Harry as well, but I suppose I'll let him be the judge of that tweet at him. Has your friendship with Alex Gruskin helped your life? Let him answer that question. I would love to hear his answer. I think he'd say yes, but with that in mind, again, you can meet people like that. Just have the sort of experience you're looking for uh, each and every summer. And by the way, improve your tennis game along the way as well. 254 Tennis Camp at Baylor University. You can learn more by clicking on the link, which you can find on our website, crackrackets.com, or by searching 254 Tennis Camps at Baylor University on Google, on the Baylor Men's Tennis website as well. With all of that said, long intro. I know. I apologize. We're rocking and rolling here. I'm riding Han Solo, as you listeners can tell. Let's get into it. And (laughs) it's funny, as I was getting ready to record this podcast, and right there, I was almost going to say, it's going to be a shorter episode. I'm just going to talk about the finals. We'll save the big picture reflections again for our episode later this week with David Kane. But it's a 20-minute intro. I don't know how short this podcast is going to end up being. That's the mystery that makes all of these podcasts enjoyable for me. Let me tell you, there's always a chuckle when West goes, how long is this one? And I go, ah, 
hour six? And he goes, yeah, that sounds about right. But with that said, let's get into it. Let's start with Iga Sviantek. Again, she captures Grand Slam title number two, her 35th consecutive victory. Let's just roll through the accolades that she racked up with this title. And many of these come from Twitter. I'll read the Twitter accounts I get them from. The next wave of them going to come from at OptaAce, who, by the way, fantastic accounts, combination of graphics and statistics. Iga Sviantek has equaled the record uh, of consecutive tournaments won in the 2000s. She's won six straight events. Doha, Indian Wells, Miami, Stuttgart, Rome, and Roland Garros. That six straight titles in a row matches the streaks of Venus Williams in 2000 and Justine Ennin in 2007-2008. Iga Sviantek is the first player to win nine WTA finals in a row since Alina Svitolina did it in the 2017 and 2018 seasons. Again, six consecutive titles here this season. She's won nine consecutive finals in a row. Her 35 consecutive victories equals the longest winning streak of the 2000s by a female player. It matches the 35 consecutive wins by Venus Williams between Wimbledon and Linz in 2000. Of course, Iga Sviantek is the fourth youngest player to win her second slam title at Roland Garros, older only than Monica Seles, Steffi Graf, and Chris Everett. Again, the list of players. Two slam titles at Roland Garros, older only than Seles, Graf, and Everett. Of course, again, Iga Sviantek becomes the youngest multiple major winner on the WTA Tour since Maria Sharapova back in 2006. The accolades speak for themselves. 35 consecutive wins. She's dropped just six sets in those 35 matches. So what? She's won 70 of them. She's dropped six. She's played 76 sets in 35 matches. Ridiculous. Ridiculous efficiency. 29 of the victories have been in straight sets. And again, 6-1-6-3 Iga Sviantek over Coco Goff in the final. Now that 6-1 first set doesn't do the scoreboard justice because there were two phases of the match, of the set, I should say. There were the first three games, which were all extraordinarily close. Now, right off the bat, Iga breaks Coco. And in that first service game, you know, Iga breaks at 1540. That was just shaky hitting across the board. You know, Goff, who in the match makes 65% of her first serves, missed a couple of first serves on those first two points. You know, Iga able to connect with a couple of early in-rhythm returns. She's broken over 56% of the time this season, the highest number in WTA Tour history. I mean, again... It was just a rough first service game for Coco Goff. It was a nervous first service game, as one would expect from any 18-year-old in their first Grand Slam singles final, particularly against a force like Iga Sviantek. Of course, then Sviantek holds, and that was a service game that went to deuce. And did Coco Goff have a breakpoint chance? No, she did not. But Iga was a bit shaky at the start of the match as well, which is something we talked about. Coco Goff perhaps might have an opportunity to capitalize on That second game, again, few rallies, if any, went over five shots. And you look overall in the match in total, Iga Sviantek wins 62 total points. 31 of them were zero to four shot rallies. That's 50%. Again, for Coco Goff, 23 of her 39 points won were zero to four shot rallies. There was a lot of zero to four, you know, plus one errors for Goff. Goff trying to take advantage early in the rallies, trying to just impose her will because, again, Iga Sviantek was dominant whenever the point was at neutral. And that gets me to the third game of the match, Coco Goff's second service game, which is the first service game. Coco Goff earns herself game point chances. Now, she goes down 30-40 
in the game. And again, a couple of unforced errors piling up. Iga aggressive with her return, aggressive first strike from the baseline. The big number for me, Iga Sviantek, plus 15 in the rallies that went five plus shots. She won 31 points, Coco Goff 16. If she could absorb the first strike and you know get a clean look on the return of serve against Coco Goff, she was just taking control of the point. It would take so much effort for Goff to be on the stretch and just get that ball back in play. Her forehand, while it had had success on the run against previous opponents, just hadn't dealt with the depth, the pace, the elevation of the Iga Sviantek forehand and Iga Sviantek ball in general. And this match was played on Iga's terms. Again, you look for Iga Sviantek in this match, lands 73% of her serves, wins 72% of her first serve points. She dropped only, tw- uh, excuse me, 14 points on serve in what? They played 7 plus 9 is 16. So she played 8 service games in total. She dropped 16 points on serve. Uh, or 9 plus 5. 14 points on serve in 8 service games. So less than 2 points per service game. I mean, you look for Coco Goff in this match. She got the one break of serve to go up early in that second set. And then that was it. Coco Goff, uh, Iga Sviantek turned the Jets back on. And again, credit to Coco Goff, who after, again, I talk about the two phases of the match. I should have said there were three. There was that opening three games of the set where Coco Goff had some opportunities. Iga was producing a couple of unforced errors. You look for Iga overall in the match. She hits... Uh, 18 winners against 16 unforced errors, and yet four Iga in set number one against 16 total unforced errors uh, for the match. Five of those 16 unforced errors. So a third of her unforced errors for the match came in the first three games. She was shaky. Uh, Both players were shaky, but that Sviantek got the shaky break when Goff had finally opened up an opportunity for herself. That was sort of the nail in the coffin for set number one, because from there, Iga Sviantek cruises. And again, you know, Coco Goff was up 40-30 and ultimately does hold 4-4-1. But even in that game, Iga Sviantek able to extend to deuce. And then in the 4-1 service game, uh, 5-1 service game, uh, 1-5, excuse me, Goff not able to even get to game point. Sviantek comfortable with the break of serve. She breaks Iga uh, Goff, three of four service games in set number one. Again, that would be 75% of the time above her already record 56% clip for the season. Then we get to the start of the second set. And credit to Coco Goff, who just settled in, extended the match, landed more first serve, started, you know, again, being more willing to just go with a not and I don't want to say a 75% rally ball because you couldn't do that against Iga Shvantec because she'd kill you but to go 85% to 90% instead of trying to go full clip and just go immediately for the plus one ball again Goth settled in was able to extend some rallies generate four unforced errors from Iga in that opening game then Goff gets the break connects with a couple of returns of serve to go up love 30 and just again settles in doesn't offer anything for free. I think one unforced error for Goff in those first two games. She goes up to love and you feel like, okay, maybe we have ourselves a match. Because again, Iga was good. She wasn't exceptional in that first set. Now she was hitting the ball early on the rise, finding winners, but it was just so difficult for Goff to generate any easy depth or pace or attacking opportunities against Iga, which to be honest, that's just like neutral Iga. That's not even great Iga. Great Iga emerged from two love down. We're just nothing Goff could do uh, up 2-0 in that second set hurt Iga 
in any way whatsoever. And that's not because Goff is ineffective. That's because Ego was just in God mode, finding every ball early on the rise down the line. Anything that was hit in the middle third of the court, Ego ultimately felt like hit for a winner or hit a ball that was unreturnable for Goff to play. And again, you look for Coco Goff in this match, 23 unforced errors, but 21 forced errors as well. So again, even when she wasn't trying to play bigger in the rally, trying to hurt Iga, and gener- and sometimes that would generate an error throughout the course of this match. There just was little she could do to respond to the pace, to the heaviness of the Iga Sviantec ball. And again, on clay, I just don't know right now beyond a Samsonova performance, Sabalenka serving lights out and just swinging freely on the return of serve, capitalizing on some second serve chances, and Amanda Nisimova perhaps because of her backhand and how her size, how can she can take that ball early on the rise. Obviously, a vintage Serena serving performance, uh, maybe a Naomi Osaka serving performance, certainly on a quicker surface than clay. Those are the sort of recipes I think you need right now to beat Iga Sviantek. You just can't play her on her terms because the moment it's on Iga's terms, she beats you by working you over to the outer third of the court, then changing direction, or just breaking you by hitting too big in that outer third of the court cross court, even if you know where the ball is going. And again, for Coco Goff, who made 65% of her first serves in this match, she won just 46% of those first serve points, 40% of her second serve points. Iga Sviantek's just a beast. Again, plus eight in the zero to four shot rallies, plus 11, five to eight shots, plus four in the nine plus shot rallies, though there were only 12 of them. Iga beat Coco Goff in every category. And again, Iga Sviantek now, 35 consecutive wins during this win streak. It's not as though it's been cupcakes either. You look for Iga, 13 and one overall on the season against top uh, 20 opponents. 13 of her 35 wins have been against the top 20. You look for her seven and one against top 10 opponents. Seven of her 35 wins have been against the top 10. 20% of the matches she's playing in this win streak have been against top 10 opponents, which means again, one in five. She's won six consecutive tournaments. She's had to play about one top 10 player in every tournament that she's won. And I actually have it in front of me. She had to play three in Doha, one in Indian Wells, one in Stuttgart, two in Rome. So she didn't have to face a top 10 player, I suppose, during this French Open run. And I think that speaks to the field at large. And that's a big picture takeaway that we can discuss with David Kane later this week. Certainly, it's one that I would like to ponder beyond myself because, well, we can talk about the live rankings momentarily, but You look for Iga Sviantek, she's the class of the field. And again, as you look big picture, Ashley Barty started the season with an 11-match win streak. Iga Sviantek now has a 35-win streak. The world number ones have won 46 consecutive matches, essentially, since Iga ascended Ashley Barty at the start of this season. The rest of the field has some work to do. There's no denying that, but guess why they have some work to do? Because Iga Sviantek has been exceptional, and again, I don't want to get my trouble myself in trouble talking more about what she has accomplished, but I read off the list of accolades. Whenever you're the youngest other than Everett and Selis and Hingis and Navratilova and again, Serena, Venus, Sharapova, Justine Ennin, when those are the players who you're the first to do this since them, you're probably on the right track. And I think we all can agree that Iga Sviantek is absolutely on the right track. Now, I think we all would say the same about Coco Goff, who, to her own acknowledgement, was having a meh sort of year. 
before this French Open run. Now you look for Iga, uh, for Coco Goff, 29 and 17 overall. Is Goff in her last 52 weeks of play? You look for her in 2021 uh, two specifically. I'm still not used to saying 2022. In 2022 specifically, she's now 20 and 11 overall on the year, but of course coming into it 14 and 10. I mean, again, she did not play a top 20 player either. Only had to play one seat on her way to the Roland Garros final. But guess what? She did not drop a set to any non-top 20 player throughout the course of this clay court season. And yes, at the time, Daria Kasatkina was outside the top 20 when she lost to her in Stuttgart. Kasatkina ultimately makes the Roland Garros semifinals. And we're not going to play the context game again with all of Coco Goff's clay court losses, but I would point out once again that you look for Coco Goff in her career on clay courts, 28 and 13 overall, 68% win percentage, her return points one jump, uh, again, uh, massively uh, in comparison to her uh, success as a returner on other surfaces, 5% jump for her. When you get to the clay courts, you now look for Coco Goff. She's made the round of 16 or further at every slam but the U.S. Open. And again, for the 18-year-old American, does it feel like she's not going to have that magical run in New York at some point in her career? Now, again, statistically, I don't have a stat to say, well, typically if you have success at this event, you know, she's made the round of 16 in Australia before that usually is a precursor to eventually making a round of 16 at the U.S. Open. Now, counterintuitively, uh, you would say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like, why not? Obviously, U.S. Open, Australian Open courts play very different, held at very different times of the season. But certainly, you look for her quarterfinal run in Doha earlier this season. She's made quarterfinals in Montreal before, quarterfinals in Dubai before. You know, again, you look for her overall uh, in hard courts uh, at the tour level on her career, 47 and 29, 62% win percentage. Now, again, the return points one takes a dip on the faster surface than it does on clay, but she's also Wimbledon second week. Perf- uh, she's made a Wimbledon second week performance early in her career as well. And with the leap she took with her forehand in Roland Garros, that's the big thing for me. Now, again, you look for Coco Goff during this clay court run, playing the Stevens of the world, the Mertens of the world, Trevisan of the world in her final three matches before the final and in the second week. None of those players have those overwhelming Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. We have a Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, folks. A country club Honoring again the dominance, the blueprint Serena Williams, uh, Serena Williams displayed throughout the course of her career. Don't tell me we don't appreciate Serena Williams here on this podcast. Uh, look, when Coco Goff faces players with that caliber of weapon, yeah, that sort of weapon. Especially on a faster surface, you can expose the weakness for Goff, which is that forehand return, which is pace and depth into that forehand wing. And Iga Swiatek has that. But not many other players can do that like Iga. And certainly if we learned anything from the French Open, it's the difficulty of players to do that with consistency. I would point you back to that first set against Sloane Stevens. Stevens was moving the ball so well around the court. And yet Goff eventually found her range about halfway through that second set of how to deal with the Sloane Stevens rally ball. Could match Stevens' physicality. And again, on clay courts, I would argue Goff is as fluid as of a mover as anyone, including Iga Swiatek in and out of corners. She has to work uh, – you know, again, she was able to generate depth with her backhand, particularly in those first two games of the second set. 
the recipe was there for Goff to have success against players who are bringing that sort of power tennis consistently against her. At the same time, only 18 years old as well to have this sort of success. No one is saying she can't continue to get better as a tennis player. Just look at the strides she's already made with her forehand, with her serve improving throughout the course of the first four career uh, seasons of her career. Only positives for Coco Goff, who, by the way, was also a doubles finalist in this event as well and has had multiple successes at the slams in doubles as well, a testament to her well-rounded game, her willingness to move forward, hit the swinging volley, make herself uncomfortable, and just play tennis. I mean, again, be around the sport, be willing to compete, put herself in these positions to make your first Grand Slam final at the age of 18. Again, it was one of the youngest finals we've seen on the WTA Tour Obviously, we just had another one in Raducanu Fernandez in New York. The next 10 years are going to be really fun. There are a lot of players who are going to take bites at the Grand Slam. Apple and Coco Goff assuredly on the short list of players who will be doing so. But again, Iga, just too good. 6-1, Her weapons went out and deserved clay court champion. Undefeated in this clay court season. When was the last time a WTA player went undefeated in a clay court season? That is the question I would ask all of you listeners to ponder if you have the answer again at AL Gruskin. Please feel free to let me know. With that said, let's move over to the men's side. And again, I know I already gave my Nadal longevity argument, him, Kareem, Serena, LeBron. That's really it. You know, again, I I don't know cycling well. Lance Armstrong was juiced, but his run was pretty fun when we didn't know he was juiced. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think in other sports in my lifetime. Football, I mean, Tom Brady, certainly six championships over 20-plus years to do it into his 40s. At the same time, football so much more team-oriented, coach-dependent, and just not comparable, I think, in the same way. You know, basketball's a team sport, but the best individuals always thrive in basketball. Go look at the resumes. Go look at the best players who are winning championships year in, year out. Diana Taurasi, I refuse to not include her in this conversation because Taurasi may actually be the GOAT. But, I mean, Rafael Nadal now, 22 Grand Slam singles titles, most in men's singles open era history. And that number is now two ahead of Novak Djokovic. Again, coming out of Wimbledon, the discussion was, is he going to win the Golden Slam? Is he going to win the the uh, the gold medal at, at the Olympics as well? Take that argument away from Rafael Nadal. And at that point, if they're matched in slam titles, he has more Masters titles. He has the head-to-head advantage. And, you know, again, he's going to win the U.S. Open and have 21 titles and the calendar slam in his resume. It felt like the GOAT discussion was put to bed. And now maybe it is put to bed in favor of Rafael Nadal. I'm just kidding. The GOAT conversation, wow, I really just want everyone to be mad at me, is not put to bed. And that is the big takeaway is it is wide open once again. And Rafael Nadal may have creeped ahead. Now, we're not going to litigate that discussion right now. But certainly you look for Rafael Nadal. I already made the case 112-3 and at the French Open. 112-3. and and it's not as though it's been some fluff run for him to make that French Open final. Uh, you know, again, to have all of this success at the French Open, by the way, you look for Rafael Nadal. It's it's ridiculous the amount of success he has had in Paris against high-level competition. He's 32-2. and two, Not against, you know, again, fluff players. 32-2 and two against the top 10 
in Roland Garros in his career. There's only two losses, obviously, coming to Novak Djokovic. 32-2 and two against top 10 players. You ask yourself, well, how many of those matches went five sets? How many of those matches was Rafa at least pushed the distance in? You look for Rafael Nadal in terms of, again, against top 10 players. He's only been pushed to five sets two times against top 10 players. 32-2. and two. I don't know what more I need to say. 6-3, 6-love. Rafael, 6-3, uh, 6-3, 6-3, 6-3, 6-3, wins the final 11 games of the match. Rafa, an 82% win percentage on his first serve. Kasparud, 9 of 29 on second serve points. That tells the story of the match. When Rafa was in control, he was in control. And throughout the course of this match, he was in control. 37 winners against 18 unforced errors. 7 of 10 of 22 at the net. Everything was on Rafa's terms. He found the Casper Rude backhand. If Rude tried to hit a forehand from that corner, particularly hit a forehand inside in to challenge the Rafa backhand, Rafa, particularly those last 11 games, did not miss an on-the-rise backhand cross-court to the open space. And Rude, you know, had his opportunity, certainly, in terms of plus-one performances. Casper Rude won 27 shots in the 0-4 to four shot rallies. Rafa won 28. Casper Rude could match Rafa in the plus-one category. When he hit his spot well and, you know, again, was able to hit a massive first serve and get an easy plus-one look, Casper Rude was able to take advantage of those opportunities. Those opportunities were so few and far between. Because, again, Rafael Nadal, if he gets his racket on the return of serve, he's just able to hit a loopy, elevated, neutral ball back to you. Casper Rude was in his own head. He didn't know, do I go inside in and just keep attacking the Rafael Nadal backhand? Then that answer was no, because Rafa was hitting the cross-court backhand so well. So maybe I should try attacking the forehand and, you know, going inside out and mixing in the drop shot and moving forward. Well, that didn't work because Rafa was hitting his on-the-run forehand so well and just, you know, tracking down any drop shot Casper threw at him and just, you know, again, yes, Casper got the break, took a 3-1 advantage in that second set, played a really good stretch of tennis there to go up 3-1, was able to find some great depth on his backhand for a couple of points in a row. Comes up with a Rafa-esque on-the-run forehand down-the-line winner as well, which, again, straight out of the Rafael Nadal playbook. And then Rafa found the backhand again. And whenever... Rude tried to go backhand to backhand down the line. Rafa made him pay. Backhand cross court to the open space. Rude does whatever he can to get his racket on that ball. Doesn't matter. Rafa now has a forehand and inside out, inside in. He can do whatever he wants with it. And I tweeted this out throughout the course of the match. There's a rigorous... I mean, there's a boringness to the rigorous discipline of Rafael Nadal. Like, if you have watched enough Nadal over the years, you know exactly what shot he's going to hit eons before he ends up hitting it. You know the playbook. You know how he's going to try and break down each and every opponent. You know what he's going to do with that forehand. You know when he's going to move forward. You know the spots he's going to hit on the serve. You know the routine of dusting off the baseline with his feet and the different picks of the shorts and the shirts and the headband. We know the Rafa routine. That doesn't make it any less exceptional to watch him continue to execute with this discipline at age 36, knowing the injections in his foot, the pain with which he's playing, talking openly after the match. Of course, he wants to continue to play, but he's being honest with himself. He doesn't know how possible that is given the condition of his foot. That's the honesty we ask for out of every athlete. Rafael Nadal has, if nothing else, always conveyed that honesty on the court. He just, he's, he he epitomizes, again, he's himself. He is thoroughly himself in everything he does. The competitiveness, the never-say-die attitude, that ability to track down every ball, that ability to find his best in the biggest moments. Again, 112-3 and three 
at Roland Garros. I'm not sure I have much more to add than that. Again, it was a thorough breakdown of Kasparud. Vintage Rafael Nadal, second fewest games he's ever dropped in a major final. He was exceptional. Didn't want to drop to his knees in celebration after the match. Obviously, he's close with Kasparud, who's trained at his academy, who looks to him as a mentor. And, you know, for Rafa, maybe doesn't want to even have to stand up and put more pain on that foot. Just, again, he's classy all the way through. And, I mean, yeah, uh, for Rafael Nadal, just epitomizes excellence. And I, I'm, it's my mistake. I said I was never going to pick out against him until he loses two years in a row. He lost last year. I thought he'd only played two warm-up tournaments. He hadn't won the title. He didn't look his best. He looked his best for, you know, again, first set against Novak Djokovic, down four, you know, down in that second set, down, uh, down in the fourth set, uh, down, excuse me, in that fourth set, four one. He tur- down and uh, in the four three service game against Felix in the fifth set in their round of sixteen match or whatever round that was. First set tiebreaker, down two six against Zverev. There were multiple moments and more so than ever before. And there was a stat from the ATP tour of like how few sets where he's dropped like eleven sets or something ridiculous in his career at Roland Garros which again, joke. Um, it's not 11. It's a little higher than that. But it's it's like, it's under 40. Under 40 sets in his 14 title runs. Ridiculous. In 112 victories. In 115 matches, he's dropped fewer than 40 sets. That's just nuts. And I'm pretty sure that stat is accurate. Again, I owe to you all the double check. I, I got to start double checking these stats before I bring them to you. But it, it's a ridiculous number. The point being, uh, there were more opportunities to attack him. Certainly, again, Felix in the fifth set, Zverev throughout the course of that match, Djokovic up 4-1 in the fourth. Um, there were no opportunities to attack Rafa in this final. Brought, you know, again, was so disciplined in how he executes, as he always does. And now, Roland Garros title number 14, slam number 22. He's in Serena Williams, Navratilova, Margaret Court range. If he's healthy, why not? That's the question. Again, if the start of this season has proven anything and you look for Rafa Nadal now at the start of this season, just a ridiculous level of success, 31-54 and 54 in his last 52 weeks, 30-3 and three overall on the year, wins the Australian Open, wins the Roland Garros title, wins in Acapulco, you know, makes that final in Indian Wells where he's playing with a cracked rib and still almost takes the title there. One of the greatest, if not the greatest athletes we'll see with our eyes of our generation. And certainly as a 26-year-old, again, I haven't gotten to enjoy all of Rafa's career. Uh, Man, has he spoiled me. Again, him, LeBron, Kareem, Serena, that's Diana Taurasi. That's the list for me of the athletes that have defined my life so far. Tom Brady probably belongs on that list as well, but Rafael Nadal and Michael Phelps in Beijing. I think Michael Phelps run in Beijing, if you were an American teenager, particularly teenage boy as I was at that time, it just you're attracted to dominance. And what Phelps was able to do at that Olympics, I don't think any of us will forget. Um, that said, you know, again, Rafael Nadal belongs on that list unequivocally. French Open title number 14, still, still alive, as we say. And by the way, for those who are new listeners and may not understand, when we say still alive in the GOAT conversation, that's a joke. When we say Iga Sviantec still alive in the greatest of all time conversation, that's not saying she is 
in the conversation right now to be the greatest of all time. That means she hasn't been eliminated in the greatest of all time conversation. Some of you listeners are well aware of what we're meaning, but I know some of you new listeners are not and we're confused by that conversation. Again, it's the fact that she's already accomplished so much. You know, 99.96% of players by the time they're 21, you know, well, this person's not going to be the greatest of all time. With all due respect to a Jensen Brooksby, Brooksby's not going to be the greatest of all time. You know, Iga Sviantek, I'm not saying she is the greatest of all time, but you can't say definitively she will not be the greatest of all time with what she's accomplished at this point of her career. Yeah, I think we all know to this point of his career, Rafa's very much in the conversation alive, and he is in the conversation, not just not eliminated. He is very much, might even be at the top of that list right now for the greatest of all time. On the flip side, you look for Kasparud. I mean, how can you not feel good? For the 23-year-old, not only gets that quarterfinal at a slam monkey off of his back, but reaches his first Grand Slam final at age 23. And you look for Kasparud, 64-20 and 20 in his last 52 weeks of play. It's a 76% win percentage. He's 30-10 and 10 now in 2022. That includes, you know, the finals in Roland Garros, finals in Miami, title in Buenos Aires, semifinal, title in Geneva, semifinal at the Rome Masters event. You look for Kasparud, he's 97-35 and 35 since tour play resumed in August of 2020. That's a 73% win percentage. He's 30 and 14 at the Masters event. 16 and you know he's made eight different quarterfinals in those 14 Masters events, five different semifinals. He's 16 and 7 at the Slams during that point of time. And again, that number is a little bit concerning, but now he's gotten that big monkey off of his back. And again, round of 16 at the 2021 Australian Open finals of Miami. He can do it on a non-clay court surface as well. We saw his consistency at the Masters events quarterfinals after quarterfinals last season. He's one of the 10 guys. He's just going to be on the list this decade. And certainly you look for Casper now number five in the ATP live rankings with the Wimbledon points coming off of everyone's resume. Casper lost first round Wimbledon last season. He will have no problems with that fact. He's going to be a staple of the top 10 moving forward. Again, yes, the backhand, the depth of his backhand was particularly exposable by Rafael Nadal. But how many lefties are in the top 10 right now? Other than Rafael Nadal, I'll answer that question for you. It's one. It's Cam Nori, who attacks you in a completely different way. Doesn't have the weapon, the plus one, you know, again, just the ability to continuously attack you with pace and depth and just crush you anytime you leave anything short in the court. Kasparu doesn't hit a bad backhand, but neutral. It's a good neutral ball, but good is not good enough against Rafael Nadal. And I don't think Cam Nori exposes Kasparu's backhand the way you know, again, a Rafael Nadal does. Now, you could argue a Carlos Alcaraz does with his inside-out forehand, but that's a discussion for a different time. And again, other lefties like Nadal, you've got Cam Nori in the top 10, Denis Shapovalov, jury still out on. There's just a consistency to Kasparu, the discipline with which he hits his spots on the serve with how well he opens up the forehand, how well he moves across the court. He's just very good at everything. And his forehand, you know, again, it's not just very good. His forehand is an elite weapon. His ability to move that ball around the court, the heaviness of that ball, it rips through a clay court. It rips through a hard court. Jury's still out on the grass courts, but with his backhand slice, with his willingness to move forward, how well he hits his spot as a server, I'm interested to see how he performs at Wimbledon and throughout the course of this grass court season again right now ATP live rankings Medvedev one Zverev two haha Djokovic three Nadal four like what are we doing um Rude five 
Tsitsipas, 6, Alcaraz, 7, Rublev, 8, Felix, 9, Nori, 10. Not in the top 10 right now. Berrettini's 11, Hercots 12, Sinner, 13, Fritz, 14, Shapovalov, 15, Schwartzman, 16. Like, feels kind of right. Like, again, Medvedev, Zverev, 1, 2 is too high. But them, Rude, Tsitsipas, Alcaraz, that's your list, you know, again, of the players who are sniffing around Grand Slam titles right now. And obviously, we learn Alex Vierov out for the next four to eight weeks. He will be out for Wimbledon trying to make a comeback before the U.S. Open. Again, uh, Felix belongs on that list right now as well. Rublev's in the conversation. Berrettini, if healthy, certainly. Uh, but then it's the next tier. It's the Hercotses, the Sinners who are still looking for that big signature result. And if Sinner gets healthy, I think he does elevate himself, perhaps past Nori. Him in that 10 spot would feel just about perfect right now uh, in terms of the top 10 players. No disrespect to Cam Nori, who's saying he's the 11th best player in the world. I don't think that's disrespectful. Uh, you look right now, again, points race, Rafa 1, Alcaraz 2, Tsitsipas 3, Rude 4, Zverev 5, Rublev 6, Felix 7, Medvedev 8, Djokovic 9. Whose place is Djokovic taking in that top 8? Who's, you know, again, who's missing out on that ATP finals field with no Wimbledon points being offered this season. It is going to be a fascinating race to the finish for what it's worth. Alcaraz, the number one in ELO rating right now overall, crazy, but Djokovic two, Zverev three, Nadal four, Tsitsipas five, Sinner six, Rude seven, Medvedev eight, Rublev nine, Berrettini 10. I would put Felix in the Berrettini spot and say that's probably the more accurate reflection of the top 10 players in the world right now. You look at uh, yearly ELO ratings, Kasparud all the way up to seven. It goes Alcaraz one, Nadal two, Zverev three, Tsitsipas four, Djokovic five, Sinner six, Rude seven, Rublev eight, Nori 9, Hercots 10, Hogaruna 11, some other highlights, FA 12, Kasmanovic 14, Baez 19. That's the good stuff, folks. Got to love Jeff Sackman and the team over at Tennis Abstract. For what it's worth on the women's side, Iga Sviantek now uh, almost double the points of world number two Annette Kontave. Iga Sviantek 8,631 points, Kontave 4,326 points. Contave is the world number two, and again, with no Wimbledon, all the points she has stashed in the back half of last season with her win streak, and that Contave is going to be world number two for quite a bit of time. Of course, Paula Bedosa, three, Jabour, four, Sakari, five, Sabalenka, six, Pliskova, seven, then a pair of Americans, Jessica Pagula, eight. She's been a top 10 most consistent player. She, You cannot say to me that anyone of that list, Kontave, Bedosa, Jabour, Sakari, maybe Jabour, but Sabalenka, Pliskova have been definitively better than Jessica Pagula this season. She belongs at 8. Collins at 9. Muguruza 10. Radakanu 11, Kasakina 12, Goff up to new career high, number 13, Fernandez, new career high, number 15, Teichman 22, Jorzy 26, Trevisan 27, Kalanina up to 35, Haddad Maya 46, Sharif 49. Those are your new top 50 career highs. Of course, Anisimova at 25, hovering around her career high as well. On the men's side, the new career highs, Virov at 2. Rude at 5, Alcaraz 7, Felix 9, Nori 10, uh, Runa 28, Botic 29, Kasmanovic 30, Baez 32, Brooksby 33, Moken 44. Uh, those are your new career highs in the live rankings of the top 50. Again, Nakashima up to a 55, Rusevori up to a 53. These are names we've highlighted here at Cracked Rackets, and so certainly there will be names we continue to look at moving forward. But again, we'll save the big picture takeaways for later this week, and then of course, again, we're back on the 250 grind. 
two on the men's side, two on the women's side, countless challengers, ITF events for us to discuss. It's busy times in the tennis world. We know it's our job here at Crack Rackets to keep you covered on all of the latest happenings across levels, of course, if you need the more immediate updates. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Crack Rackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our friends over at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. 56 minutes doesn't qualify as particularly long, but I think it got the job done, of course. We still got more to discuss, and we will see you all later this week. And as you know, what do we say? That's the break, and we will talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.